Um, and I have the great pleasure of actually bringing up Jana, who is going to be reading our scripture this morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. The Lord spoke to Moses, Look, I have chosen Bezalel, Uri's son and Hur's grandson from the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the divine spirit, with skill, ability, and knowledge for every kind of work. He will be able to create designs, do metalwork in gold, silver, and copper, cut stones for setting, carve wood, and do every kind of work. I have also appointed him with Oboliath, a Hizamak's son from the tribe of Dan. To all who are skillful, I have given the skill to make everything that I have commanded you. The meeting tent, the chests containing the covenant, the cover that is on top of it, all the tent's furnishings, the table and its equipment, the pure lampstand with all of its equipment, the incense altar, oops, the altar for entirely burned offerings with all of its equipment, the wash basin with, with its stand, the woven clothing, the holy clothes for Aaron, the priest, and for his sons, for their service as priests, the anointing oil, and the sweet-smelling incense for the sanctuary. They will do it just as I've commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. We all pray with me. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence with us already this morning. Thank you for the way that you are already
doing, it feels like instead, is actually creating a study on light itself more than the haystack. So I think this is sort of what we're doing as we learn and talk about the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit. By the way, the Spirit sneaks up and sort of surprises us, I think. Always present, but revealed differently in different situations. So over the last weeks, we've read stories of loving presence and fruitful confusion and protection and conviction. And I think that the more we see the Spirit at work in all these different ways, the more that we see these sort of like different um, views of the haystack, we're also starting to see constancy between these appearances. We're seeing the steady way that the Spirit is always working to illuminate in the world what is true. So we saw this last week as we recounted the story of Job with an eye towards the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in that story we were hearing was both a comfort to Job and also this voice of newness and change. And sometimes, um, sometimes it feels like there were sort of strange or awkward leaps in between those two modes. I'm hoping this morning that that strangeness can become more familiar to us. Um, especially because today's text, which is out of Exodus 31, is another text that I would put in the category of difficult to put on a felt board. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm sort of like embarrassed slash delighted to say that I had to look up how to pronounce Bezalel and Oholiab. This However, the background to this moment that we're encountering is a story that I have seen done on a felt board. It's the story of the Israelite people escaping from their Egyptian captivity. Y'all might know this one. It's like very Prince of Egypt. <laughs> Moses, the baby in the basket, drawn into reluctant leadership. Through Moses, God speaks to God's people whispering to them, whispering to them to leave their bondage, to walk across the sea and into a desert in search of a land that could be their home. Um, I want to take a moment because with everything going on in the world right now, I think this story feels especially heavy as very real instances of terror and oppression continue to create refugees who flee oftentimes into the desert, oftentimes seeking asylum and safety and home. In the Exodus story, what we see is the presence of the Lord tangibly with the Israelites as they flee. There's a pillar of cloud with them by day, and there's a pillar of fire by night. And even with these signs with them as like I still can't imagine the fear that must have been involved in wandering across the desert and like waiting for water from a rock or manna from the sky. I don't know about you, but I get grumpy and anxious when I run out of coffee in the morning. So I have a lot of compassion for the Israelites when they ask in Exodus 17, is the Lord with us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? And then there's sort of there's this shift in the story. And it feels a little bit like what we talked about. 
about um, in God's response to Job last week that instead of an immediate and tangible relief to the suffering and to the uncertainty, the Lord instead comes near and gives them a surprising vision. So God um, parts them at the base of Mount Sinai, and then we get 12 chapters worth of instruction in the law. Like, that's not what I was expecting at that moment. It's like, yes, 10 commandments on the felt board, but it's also instructions for worship, for sacrifice, for property law, for festivals. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and like, I don't read that he got a snack or a nap or anything. I think he just stayed there receiving this vision for an entire way of life for a chosen people. And I wonder, like I have to wonder how much this vision to Moses felt a really far stretch from the physical fragility that they were experiencing right then. And it's in the middle of this that Moses receives instruction for the building of the tabernacle. There's like, there's an irony here that in the midst of a season where food is daily and water is miraculous, the Lord lays out instructions for this lavish, intricate, mobile construction plan. In some ways, it seems to make no sense. And in other ways, I think it's the only thing that makes sense. Because the Israelites have asked with tears and with trembling, is the Lord with us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? They have been in physical peril. Their bodies have been, like, their bodies have been commodified as slaves. Their bodies have been in danger and in insecurity in the desert. And now their bodies are going to be able to see, taste, enter, participate in this complete rhythm of life that is oriented around reminding them of the Lord's provision. This is a, a beautiful and a holy physical space to remind them that their God is a God of physical deliverance and daily sustenance. Okay, and this is where our text is tucked in, where Bezalel and Oholiab are by name and where the Holy Spirit you can see show up all over scripture makes an appearance like a really beautiful fox on your commute to work and there's this tension I think how can the spirit who just chapters before was leading a revolution was dressed as a pillar of fire be the same spirit that makes tender the fingers of someone embroidering the hem of a robe. And that's what sort of gets me about this text, is that it is the same word for the Spirit, for the wind that actually blew the waters of the Red Sea apart. One place it's translated as God's nostrils. That's the same word for the Spirit that comes and fills Bezalel and Oholiab for this intricate, this delicate, What we see is that the same spirit that delivers from bondage also compels us 
into our purpose, which is worship. Freedom and worship are united in the spirit. They're sort of intricately bound up with each other. Because without worship as the mode of our lives, I think we lose sight of that which sustains our freedom. And we can tumble into idolatry. Like this is what we see in the very next chapter. The Israelites construct the golden calf. But there's something about this commitment to the slow work of hands and creativity, in attention to detail for the purpose of worship, that is an act of defiance against this logic of idolatry. I think idolatry feels like the fear of being without enough that reacts by trying to take power over others, by taking possession of the material world. But the focus here on the physical and the creation of a space for worship, this is an affirmation that intricate bodily work. It's a celebration of materialities, the stuff of the world itself. And it's setting for these people a different mode, a different tempo, for how the Israelite people are supposed to see and interact with both the material world and also the bodies of each other and of their neighbors. It's supposed to continue in the same breath as liberation. And so for the Israelites, before they can enter the promised land and they can set up their new system of governance and plant vineyards and get out their ruler blades, before all of that, the spirit fills as well to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut stones, to carve wood, to make, to mold, and then to teach others to do the same in order to create this space of worship. I think one way to think about this passage for ourselves is thinking about our spaces of worship, like our music, all the art stuff, which is very important. But this is not to say that this story is somehow arguing for cathedrals to be built on every corner for us to like suddenly become very fancy. Like I thought about wearing a prom dress this morning and then realized that wasn't quite right. <laughs> because I think an orientation to beauty for its own sake can also become idolatry. It can become sort of a way of buffering us from listening to the wind of the spirit or paying attention deeply to the movement towards whatever is worshipful. Instead, what I see here is that the people gave generously of their time, of their physical gifts, and of their talents in order to create a space of worship with intentionality and beauty and functionality that declared at every turn that worship is the center of their community. That's all of chapters 35 through 40. It's just descriptions of the community coming and working together, working beside each other with their skills and their hands and their ideas. Beyond even spaces of worship proper, like this space, this type of attention, this deep attention to what is good in a space for its purpose dignifies creation, the creative world, in a way that's actually consistent with God's 
deeply tender act of creating the world with such goodness in the first place. Like, I, I think we see this, um, we see spaces become worshipful when they're attended to with love and with artistry. Like, I feel like we all know someone who when we first go into their home, we feel suddenly very at home. It's like, oh, suddenly I'm fine. <laughs> and there's nothing concrete about what that is. It's just an artful attentiveness to the purpose of that space, that hospitality. Some people um, are really good at making space like that just in their conversation with you. I actually, I know someone who keeps an extra pair of sunglasses in his car because he's so committed to giving someone else a delightful passenger experience. <laughs> like that is the type, of, the type of attentiveness and imagination the spirit is compelling in these chapters. And I think we're, um, we're always trying to think here at Oak about how the practices we learned at worship can spill out into other practices, turning our whole lives into worship. One writer says we are holy creatures living among other holy creatures in a world that is holy. This is what we talked about right at the beginning of this series, about how the Holy Spirit broods with warm breasts bright wings over the whole bent world, continually upholding the goodness of creation and then working to renew that which is broken or in bondage. So what that means is that the, the logic of worshipful creativity is meant to flow out from our worship spaces and into everything that we are about. So for those of us that at the beginning of this sermon, read the passage and we're like, I'm not an artist. I'm just gonna sit here and doodle for 15 minutes. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> First of all, if you're doodling, that doesn't make any sense because you're an artist. <laughs> Second of all, the same spirit that empowers Bezalel and Oholiad gives them skill, ability, and knowledge in craft. Skill, ability, knowledge, and craft. Those are words that could describe a lot of different vocations. And by vocation, I mean maybe the actual place where you work, but it can also be the vocations of your passions, the vocations of your gifts, what you are called to. Um, like, I and a surprising number of people in this room have been learning about farming over the last month or so, and I am astounded every single day at the way that form and matter, left and right brain, problem-solving, risk, and attentiveness are all a part of something like farming that I don't know we rarely, or we rarely think of as an art form. And I think at a really basic human level, the weight of being human means that we're always making choices that affect matter, that affect the world, that are affecting others. We're all crafting a life, we're creating a story. What this doesn't mean is that we're all good artists, or that we're all molding our lives in the service of worship. I think we could also be following the logic of idolatry, or even the logic 
slavery that the Israelites are fleeing, which reduces the whole world to profit instead of seeing it as a gift. I think that in this country we are still marred by the profound wound of this type of logic. The profound wound of slavery is like burned into our history. And it's a wound that is going to continue to be reinfected or reinvigorated into new manifestations of oppression as long as we continue separating these questions of the way we worship from the way we treat bodies of our neighbors and the material world. Like one way I see this in my life, um, I know that in the artwork that is the way that I am painting the world. Sometimes I paint the world by my choices. Um, I portray it as something that is cheap and disposable and here for my glory and comfort instead of the Lord's. Like sometimes I know that when I buy what I want, just like food or clothing or stuff, I pretend that I don't know that in the production of those things, certain bodies, oftentimes marginalized bodies, are treated also as disposable instead of whole in a world that is whole. What we see in Exodus 31 is the dignifying of manual labor of creation in a way that I think sometimes we've forgotten as a society. So we, we push certain professions, we push farmers and manufacturers and technicians and all these embodied professions into more and more hidden spaces. Um, sometimes I think idealizing the idea that we all sit at computers and have no lives. We try and make bodily work less necessary, more efficient and less bodily. And in doing so, sometimes I think we make it less lovely and healthy and skillful. And all of that, instead of seeing that our physical need and physical labor is deeply participatory, it's invited into the way that we worship. So this isn't a call to crafting or bedazzling your jeans <laughs> necessarily, but more of an open question of like, what would it mean to do the work of being the church in the world artfully with the power of a creative creator spirit? Like, what would it mean to look at creation with the illumination of the spirit and then to bring the work of our hands into alliance with that vision. We read from Annie Dillard last week about how much the creator loves pizzazz, loves shaping the world in a way that reveals sort of this divine exuberance for materiality. In a different place, um, Dillard writes about how we, and many of us, had our senses numbed by living lives where we're always trying to um, make sense or sort of control what it is that we see. So she's describing this group of children who were blind and then they had this sight restoring surgery 
And just like painters have to train their whole lives to be able to do, these children could see the world in color patches. Um, they could see form, they could see texture. Like, I don't know if anyone else had to do this in your third grade art class, but I know in mine, I had to turn my painting upside down so that I could unlearn that that was a vase or a soccer ball or whatever they were making us paint, and in, instead be able to actually see anew, to be able to see line and form and shadow, and to have an imagination for a different way of experiencing reality. So this ability to see, to see the world, to see creation, to attend really deeply to a material or a medium, the sort of listening of love, and an imagination for the newness instead of what you think you know, what you thought you knew about it. That is what I think the artist, the maker, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is given a gift, given the ability to do. There's a way of seeing earthly that is so in line with the Spirit, is born from the very shape of the Trinity. Kim knows that last time I tried to talk about this, I got weeping, so we'll see how this goes. Within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are bound together in this beautiful dance of mutual indwelling. There's this tender, balanced, endless movement of self-giving and delighted submission that's always making room for difference, always receiving the gift of distinction from the other with hospitality and then weaving it into this unified whole. This movement, this fullness, I think another name for it could be just love, is actually what spills out over the waters of creation, what broods and separates and crafts and generates in that original creative action. So the artist, the maker, inspired by the Spirit, by this love, gets to co-create with God to see the world new. To see the world as that which is already good and being renewed. This gift of sight means, just like the hospitality that is created in the Trinity, or the way that God makes room for what is not God in creation, that the artist is always looking to make space for the gift of the material thing, like wood, wood, and other wood, woodworkers in the room, Taylor, um, to, yeah, to make space and to listen to the thing as it is, to watch, listen, put your close in order to attend carefully, instead of maybe manipulating it into whatever fulfills our desires, but in, with the intention of discovering and tending to the goodness of what is actually there. So, like, I'm trying to think about this in my friendships because I know that I so often want others to see me as a gift first or to like make a space themselves for my skills and knowledge. And I forget that my first action ought to be first trying to see them with this type of love with new eyes for who they actually are and how their flourishing might look different than what 
smooth out. Um, on, on a bigger scale, I was just thinking about the lyrics struck by the lyrics of the song that we sang today, Peace Like a River, which I know could feel trite and simple in the face of so much that feels really heavy and broken in these weeks. But I have a deep suspicion that for the people of God, called to the work of seeing the world in newness and in unity, having love like an ocean or joy like a fountain, those aren't sentimental wishes for us. Those are the actual serious tools by which we are reforging swords of violence into plows for peace. This type of seeing through the Spirit is tied in with so many other gifts of the Spirit. We're going to talk about um, one more. One more way that the Spirit lights up the world in truth, um, the gift of creative discernment. So in that movement that we just talked about, this sort of self-forgetting action of trying to see the world with love, um, we, disciples, artists, makers, also are invited to enter a dialogue, a real give and take with whatever it is we're in which our identities are also fully invited and essential to whatever the task is in front of us. I love, so Bezalel's name actually means in the shadow of God. And I love, um, that really reminds me of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who I think of as one of the prime examples in scripture of what it means to be a creator and a maker. What it means to enter into a receiving and giving partnership of co-creation with the Holy Spirit. So Mary collaborates with the Spirit when she calls herself a servant of the Lord and says yes to bearing this child. And just like an artist, just like a craftsperson, her submission to receiving the gift of a child is not something that she's forgotten in. There's no loss of self. But instead, it's an openness to wonder that allows her to participate in something new. There is like risk and labor and choice on her part. Her identity is fully present and necessary in that work. But the work of bringing a child into the world is also completely a gift to her. It's completely a miracle. Just as inside, I think of childbirth and parenting as some of the most artistic vocations that humans can participate in. Because instead of getting to just enact one's own desires, I imagine that there's sort of a loss of control and a new sense of imagination that is born from like hitting your limits. But I also imagine that there's sort of an endless wonder for the, the being, the person, that is coming to its own life right in front of your eyes. I imagine that there's a, t a task of constant discernment. There's this give and take with no rules necessarily, and that's what makes it work. Another way to think about artistic discernment is to ask, through listening and through love, 
the question at every turn, what is fitting here? What is good? I think makers ask this in physical creation. What is fitting? But we also ask this just in the way we live, in our decisions, in our actions. Because the Holy Spirit is laboring with us towards redemption. And sometimes that's going to look like um, taking chaos and turning it into a form. But sometimes that's going to look really different. It's going to look like taking staleness and turning it into a whole chaos and disrupting it. So there's always this, um, this need for discernment, this need for that gift. Like Mary's song of praise, Magnificat, is about how God has actually brought low the mighty and lifted up the lowly, turned the whole world topsy-turvy to bring about what is fitting, what is actually beautiful. So the discernment that the Spirit gives is this whisper of what is necessary here, what is wise. This is the wisdom that the woman at Bethany was given when she poured a precious perfume over Jesus' head. The disciples are like, this doesn't make any sense, scientifically. <laughs> but Jesus says, oh, her choice is beautiful because it's fitting. It's a choice towards this spirit-illuminated vision of the world in a way that's deeper than the disciples were perceiving. This is the wisdom that allows us to listen deeply and to move in the world with both gentleness and courage and using each in turn as it's applicable. Sometimes I think with the strangeness and the anger of a prophet against an unjust structure. And sometimes I think with the gentleness of a mother rocking a child to sleep. This might mean for us small actions done in deep love. This also might mean speaking boldly, even when you are afraid you might stutter. And the Spirit partners with us, is our friend in choosing what now? What is worshipful now? I know I oftentimes, as an artist, wish that making was based on rules. That would be so nice. I wish that creating was based on laws, around principles that I could see and control. But I also think of the way that laws right now are failing us. The way that laws are boxing us sometimes into being unable to see or hear the faces and voices of our neighbors. I also keep thinking about the way that changing light can reveal something new. And the gift of the Spirit is to come alongside us with both the ability to see the world as something that can be made new, and then also the prompting to weigh our actions against this vision of light. So Bezalel and Oholiab receive the gift of ability, intelligence, and knowledge for a specific artistic task. And the Holy Spirit is with us also in 
flame and in cloud and in worship and work and whatever our vocations, whatever the material with which we work in the world, we are also called to be worshipful and to continue in the same breath of liberation by asking for wisdom to tend deeply, attentively to the work in front of us, to listen, to put our ear close and try and hear and then to call forth in love what is illuminated by that spirit. We worship you. 